Welcome back, everyone, to the Practicology Podcast. We are so grateful that you keep tuning in week after week. And two weeks ago, Thomas was on to introduce us to the doctrine of God's providence. And you can remember how he defined providence as God's purposeful sovereignty, where sovereignty is God's right to rule. And if God has the right to rule, well, providence reminds us that God exercises that rule purposefully. He has a great purpose in mind to glorify his son by establishing him as Lord over everything and bringing us into his kingdom. And that takes us to today's episode, where we're looking to you, Thomas, once again, to bring us into this subject, but to narrow it and, and, and make it more specific. Talk to us about the doctrine of providence and the Christian. Well, thanks for having me back, Mike. And this um, topic, providence, how it relates to our Christian life, is a beautiful subject and one that I've enjoyed more and more the more I've studied it. And the last episode we had were together, we jumped all throughout the Bible looking at different passages that describe God's providence. But in this episode, we're going to stay close around one passage in Scripture that talks about how God's providence acts in our lives, and that is uh, Romans 8, verses 28 to 39. So, Mike, could I get you to read this passage for us? I'm always happy to read this passage. So here it is. <clears throat> it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this passage, the first thing we see in how God exercises his providence in our lives as Christians is that God has providence in our salvation. We saw that in verses 29 and 30, where Paul says that God foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, justified us, and glorified us. This is a beautiful golden chain that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, wherein God has decreed that all things work together for your good. And one of those greatest goods is your eternal salvation. All right. Well, the golden chain has made its way onto the Practicology Podcast. This is good. And of course, by a golden chain, you're talking about these five links in the chain. Um, it's a string of five active verbs describing what God does for his people. And the first link on the chain, according to these verses, is that he, he foreknew us. And I suppose a popular view, Thomas, is that this means that God, you know, he peers ahead, he foresees, looks ahead into the future to see who will believe in Christ. 
And is that what this first verb refers to? Well, that is a popular view, but it is not the correct view. As you already mentioned, Mike, these are active, not passive verbs, which means this foreknowing is God's action. It's not something that he observes somewhere else. So God is not foreseeing actions. He's not foreseeing belief or who will believe. Rather, Paul says he foreknows people. God is setting his love on people without respect to their actions. Then those whom he foreknows, those whom he sets his love on, he predestines. He decrees their destiny. And that destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. But God doesn't just in his providence declare what the end will be, but he also in his providence brings about the means by which this end will come to pass. And that's this next link in the chain where those whom he predestined, he calls. And this call is not the general gospel call, but this is the effectual internal call whereby God calls us out of darkness and into light. Thomas, you're uh, distinguishing there between a general gospel call, you know, the general call of the gospel to all people who hear it, and, and this other kind of call, this effectual call you're saying, where God powerfully uh, brings us to salvation. And uh, I just want to point out that that's not just an arbitrary thing that you're saying, so it fits your system, but we do see this in 1 Corinthians 1, this distinction between these two kinds of calls. And maybe you have something else you want to say. Maybe there's another signal in the context here of Romans 8 that this is not just the general call. Well, yeah, I'd like to point out that everyone whom God calls, he, in the next set, in the next verb, he justifies. So we see this is not something general where people hear the call and some are justified and some are not. No, everyone who hears this call is justified. And everyone who hears this call and is justified is also glorified. So there's no one who can slip through the cracks here. But then that brings us to the next link. Those who are called are justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous and clothed in Christ's righteousness. And everyone whom God justifies, he glorifies. And this is the ultimate good, which God is working all things together to bring you to your eternal glorification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I, I repeat all that to make the point that, you know, not one of these links falls. No, no one slips through the cracks here. Everyone whom God sets his love on in eternity past, everyone whom he foreknows, he makes sure they step to go through all these links and they ultimately are glorified to eternity. There is no one in whom God begins a good work and fails to bring it to completion. Everyone whom he sets his love on eternity past, he securely brings to glory into eternity future. All right, so you've taken us through these precious truths very quickly, but you've taken us through verses 28 to 30. Romans 8 is such a great chapter. Let's keep going. Um, what can we learn about God's providence in the Christian's life? in the rest of the verses, say from verse 31 to the end. Well, in these verses, I think we see God's providence and preservation. And so Paul has told us that everyone whom God justifies, he glorifies. But there's a long gap in between our, well, at least for most of us, our justification and our glorification. And so in these verses, Paul is showing us that God will make sure he holds fast everyone whom he justifies. And he starts this off in verse 31 by asking this rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is meant to be obvious. No one. No one can be against us. If God is working all things together for our good, 
there's no one who can stop him. If God and since God is working for us, for our good, no one can be against us. You know, this is meant to bring great consolation to every believer's soul. You know, we live in the midst of a God-hating world, and that's the world that the people whom Paul was writing to found themselves in as well. And I think through most of church history, most Christians have found themselves in a world and an environment that hates them and hates the God they believe in. But Paul is telling us that since God is for us and working everything for our good, no one and nothing can be against us. Mm-hmm. And if Paul had stopped right there, I mean, that would have been great, <laughs> right? I mean, this is already amazing. And if that was the end of it, I mean, we could be thankful for the rest of our lives. But Paul isn't content to leave it there. And he continues with four follow-up questions to uh, further delineate what it means for God to be for us. Yes, Paul wants to emphasize beyond a shadow of a doubt in every Christian's mind that they have unwavering security in Christ. And so Paul asks another rhetorical question, and it comes in verse 32. And this first one is, he asks, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser. God has already given us the greatest gift he possibly could. He did not spare his own son. So if God has given us this great gift, what could possibly prevent God from giving us every other gift? Notice Paul's ironclad logic. To whom all he has given his son, he will not fail to give them all things. Indeed, God cannot fail in this. The death of his son is unspeakably precious to God. See, Christ's death so completely satisfies the Father that all other blessings flow to the believer through the death of his son. God has done the hard part. He has given us the greatest gift he possibly could. He gave us his son when we were his enemies. And now that we are his children, do you think God will just only now begin holding his gifts back? No, he will continue to give us every other lesser but good gift. Well, we recently talked on the podcast about how we can use our minds to love God. And um, I think we might have mentioned Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones' expression, logic on fire. And and this is just such a great example. You know, this logic that you're working through here, Thomas, is not cold logic. This is a logic that can set our heart on fire. I remember a time when I was in the depths of despair and one night God gave me understanding of the logic, not of these verses, but of some verses in Philippians, I think it was. And suddenly I was, I was filled with such joy that I ran all the way to my grandparents' house on the other side of town with joy. And I felt like I could have run all night. So listeners, uh, track with what Thomas is saying here. Follow the logic, memorize the argument, because this will serve your joy. It certainly served to bring me joy. We see Paul asks a second question in verse 33, and he says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? As we ponder this question, we immediately are troubled to think of someone who does bring charges against us. You know, in Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night. And so with such a powerful adversary, how can we be sure that we can stand before God without a charge? Because if we know ourselves and I think most of us are well acquainted with our hearts, we know well that Satan does have a strong case against us. We see an example of this in the book of Zechariah, where Satan has a case against Joshua the high priest, and Satan has a strong case 
because Joshua was standing before God in filthy garments. And we know our sinful hearts well, that Satan has a case against us. But Paul's question is, if God is for us, who can bring any charge against God's elect? And I love Doug Moo's answer to this. He says, the answer is in the question. We are God's elect. God has already chosen you. God has decreed that you will be saved. So if God has decreed this, do you think Satan or anyone else could undo God's eternal decree? And what is it Paul tells us that silences Satan char Satan's charges? It is God who justifies. God is for us. God is for you. And he has declared us righteous before him. See, God has already rendered his judgment. Your case has been decided. There's no room for Satan to bring any further charges in. God, who is working things together for your good, has set his love on you. And in your faith, God has declared you righteous. It is God who justifies. So there is no higher court than that, right? For Satan to appeal to, uh, this decision, this judicial decision God has made cannot be overturned. It is God who has justified us. Praise God for that. And, and then Paul brings out a third question to help unpack all this for us. He says in verse 34, who is to condemn? And again, as we ponder this question, we immediately think of something that does condemn us. The law condemns us. Paul has said that himself earlier in Romans. Romans 3 verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law condemns us, and uh, 1 John 3.20 says that our hearts also condemn us. Our conscience is the voice of God's law written on our hearts. And before our conversion, our consciences convicted us of our need of salvation. And at our conversion, we came to Christ with our guilty consciences, and we, we sought deliverance. But you know, after our conversion, our consciences just do not go away. In fact, they often convict us even more severely. This was an observation from John Owen that I found immensely helpful. So I was troubled that my conscience didn't seem to go away, and it made me ponder whether or not I was even a true believer. But John Owen notes that very often our, con our conscience gets worse. It convicts us more once we're saved. He writes that conscience now sees more sins than formerly, more of the vileness of all sins than formerly, and condemn them with more abhorrency than ever upon more and more glorious accounts than formerly. You see, now that we're saved, our consciences are refined and sensitized, and they look at our lives still beset with indwelling sin and apply the merciless standard of the law to our hearts. And so our conscience tells us, you see that grievous failure? You see that besetting sin in your life? Surely no true Christian would ever fall into that. But Paul tells us that we can have peace because there is only one who can condemn us. In fact, we're told in John that all judgment has been committed to him. And so this one, this only one who can stand to condemn us, rather than condemn us, he is the one who has died for us. He will not condemn those whom he has died to save. But Paul goes on, there's even more than that. Not only has he died for us, he is raised for us. You see, Christ's resurrection declares his victory over sin and death. As Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But it's, there's even more than that. Not only is he raised, but he is now at God's right hand where he is interceding for us. And this intercession holds us secure and fast. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 7 verse 2, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. Awesome. Yeah. Again, Paul could stop here and it would be wonderful, but he carries on Thomas and asks a fourth question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Yes, that's verse 35. And we could be tempted to think that trial and tribulation is a sign of God's displeasure. We might ask in a time of difficulty, have we lost God's love? Or perhaps we could wonder, are there circumstances that are severe enough that could cause a Christian to abandon Christ? I think in these first three questions, we've seen pretty clearly that there's no one who could ever sever us from God. But is there perhaps the possibility that a true Christian could sever themselves from Christ, could cut themselves off from Christ's love if there was enough pressure working on them? So in verse 37, Paul lists off a number of of things that could possibly seem to sever us from Christ's love. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Could any of these things, can they sever us from the love of Christ? Paul answers resoundingly and says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we might ask, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? A conqueror is already someone who's victorious someone who wins the fight. What could it mean to be more than a conqueror? I think what Paul is saying here is that not only will a true believer endure every trial, but those trials are working for your eternal glory. You see, God is providentially ordering every circumstance of your life so that even the worst experiences of your life, God is working them for your good. So when you are maligned and hated by unbelievers, when you face the assaults of Satan and his minions, paradoxically, they are not severing you from Christ's love, but they are actually serving your ultimate good and glorification. Right. So, so this takes us back to verses 28 to 30. In context, the, the all things that God is working for our good, it especially includes these hard things that you're talking about here in verses 35 and following, right? Um, we, we so often focus on verses 28 and 29, maybe without thinking about them in the context of the passage, but but God is working all things, including these enemies, these attacks, these uh, experiences of of persecution or tribulation or famine and nakedness and so on. He's 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 bundling all those things and turning them to our victory. Yes, that's right, Mike. Um, Stephen Sharnock rather shockingly describes the believer's suffering as God's gracious providence. You see, whatever you face, whatever difficulty you are in, it is God's fatherly hand that is ultimately behind it. By God's gracious providence, you are made to be more than a conqueror in the face of that suffering and adversity. So Paul sums this all up for us in these glorious verses in verses 38 and 39, where he says that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we are held fast by an absolutely unbreakable love. There is nothing that can break that. Notice that you yourself cannot break that love. For Paul says nothing else in all creation. There is no no created thing that can ever sever you from God's love, including yourself. You see, this brings us back to where we began. Everyone to whom God sets his love on in eternity past, that love holds them fast through to eternal glorification. 
Oh man, yeah. I feel really safe <laughs> when, when we go through verses like these. And I'm so glad that God is providentially at work in our lives, in the life of the Christian. He's at work in saving us. He's at work in preserving us. And I think those are really two ways of saying the same thing. Um, his saving us includes his preserving us. His preserving us includes his saving us. And I think we're seeing, Thomas, that God's providence is not something for us to be scared of, right? No, it is not something for us to be scared of. On the contrary, it is something to give us great peace and stability. It is one of the most glorious truths that we can grasp hold of, that God's providence holds us fast and gives us peace and security in an unstable world. I think John Piper says it well in his book on providence, where he says, God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty over good and evil in order to humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put a ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, gladness in the groans of affliction, and love in the heart that sees no way forward. You see, even in the greatest depths that we can experience, we can know that God's providential fatherly hand is holding us safe and secure there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think already, uh, as we near the end of this episode, I think already we've been given a lot in this episode that is practical and, uh, and affects our life. But uh, last time you finished with some practical applications from Charnock, and um, I think you've saved a few more for us to finish this one off. Uh, yes, I'd like to look at three more practical applications from Charnock's book on Divine Providence. And the first one I'd like to look at is, he says, that we are to wait on God's providence. And he anchors this in 1 Peter 4.19, which says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, even when we're in times of difficulty, we're not to try to go out and accomplish by what we want by our own means, but rather we're to wait on God to provide for us the means and the ends that we desire. Yeah, so um, maybe you can speak a little bit more to that. Um, I think I'm prone to mishearing what Scripture says, and often when I've heard this idea of waiting on God preached or read about in the Bible, uh, I, I think, well, this must mean that it's wrong for me to do anything. I mean, for instance, if, if someone's looking for a life partner, I need to wait on God and not go to a conference where I might meet someone, or, you know, that, that would be sinful. I need to wait on God to do it. He needs to, like, bring her to my doorstep and have her ring the doorbell and I'll open it up and, oh, thank you, Gore. I'm so glad I waited on you to do this. So I don't think waiting on God means that, Thomas, but can you just uh, give us something succinct to help us narrow in on this? Yeah, the view you just described there, Mike, would be falling into the ditch of fatalism again. And so Charnock's not saying do nothing. He's not saying just let go and let God, but rather he's saying that God has given us commands. God has told us how we are to live in certain circumstances. And so even when we're in difficulty, we're not to go beyond what God has given us. So to go back to your example, looking for a life partner, looking for a spouse, that's a good desire to have, which God may be withholding from you. And so in your longing, which is a good longing for a spouse, you must only seek a spouse by the means that God has given you. So go about, use means that are godly, go to conferences, be around other believers. What Sharnock is warning against is saying, well, God is taking too long. You know, at university, there's this really attractive person, and I know they're not a believer, but they're not that bad. I think I could convert them. That's what he's saying, warning us against. He's telling us to remember that even when we're, we're in a difficult situation, 
when it seems like God has forgotten or abandoned you, that you must wait on Him and trust His providential care to not go beyond the means, the righteous means that He has given, to trust Him and His Word. Sharnak writes about this and says, Failure to wait disparages His care, binds His power, or questions His wisdom. It is to act as if He had stripped Himself of His immense goodness and forgotten both His people and His promise, as if He had cancelled the covenant and relinquished us to human lusts. You see, we're in this covenant relationship with God in the new covenant. And so God will always be with us. He will always care for us. And even when we're in a situation where we don't like our situation, we must wait on God's providence and trust His providence and act in accordance with His word, even when we can't necessarily see the way forward. Uh, secondly, Sharnak uh, gives us the practical application that we're to give God the glory. We have seen that God is working all things together for His glory and ultimately your good as well. And so let us endeavor to see His glory in all His actions. Whatever He does, when we look around, when we see God at work, let us look to see His glory and glorify Him for all that He does on our behalf. Herod failed to do this, didn't he? Um, at the end of Acts 12 there, I think uh, he gave that speech and everyone um, said it was the voice of God, I think is what, it, what they said, but he failed to give God the glory. And so I guess just a practical uh, teasing out of what you're saying here, Thomas, is when someone compliments us. It could be for speaking, you know, at the local church or, or many other areas of life. Someone compliments us. We, we can just say thank you, but at least in our hearts and then sometimes in conversation, we can say, I'm so thankful for how God helped me there or thank you, Lord, for giving me the grace to do that. Absolutely. Thanks for that little insight there, Mike. And finally, I think this is his most uh, soul-searching and incisive application that Sharnak gives. He says that we are to imitate God's love for the church. And we have seen in Romans 8 that God is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see that God has set his love upon us and that God is doing everything for our ultimate good out of his immense love for us. And God is holding us fast and secure so that we can never be lost by his immense love for us. And so if God has shown us this extraordinary love, we ought to imitate his love for those people whom he loves. When we gather together in the local church, we meet other believers, we ought to seek to imitate God's love for them the same love that He has shown us and He is showing them. Let us seek and strive to do our best to imitate God's great love and love one another. Great word to end on. Three practical applications of providence further to the ones you already gave us in a previous episode. We are to wait on God, give Him the glory, and love His people. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Thomas, thank you for working through this doctrine with us uh, for these two episodes. Thank you for reading about it, studying it, and loving it so much, and then um, just helping introduce it to us. We really appreciate your time here. Well, thanks for having me back, Mike. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll be back with us next week for another episode of Practicology. The Lord bless you. <laughs>